want you just to think with me for a second how you would answer uh, this question. Maybe you haven't thought of this exact question, but some version of it in your life. Sometimes we go through and we think in our life, everything would be great if. Right? We, we start to make connections and we say, well, you know, everything would be great if, and we fill in the blank of like, everything would be great uh, if I got a raise at work or I got the promotion that I've been wanting. If they would just uh, recognize all the stuff I've been doing, everything would be great if, or everything would be great if uh, my kids were just doing a little better or if they're, whatever that is, their, their health, their spiritual, needing a job, whatever that may be. If my kids were just in a little better place, everything would be great. Or sometimes everything would be great if I had the right relationship or if my health improved. Or, or maybe even it's a different version of that. Sometimes it's kind of a, a bargaining with God. God, I will follow you more fully and I'll trust you more if you would just do this one thing. And so sometimes we pray in those ways and we think in those ways and we kind of drill down of, man, this is the heart of, man, if God would just do this, if just this one thing, it would make everything be so much better. And so sometimes when we ask that question and we think about that, and as I asked you to think about that this morning, everything would be great if it helps diagnose our deepest desires, where it is in our life that we're putting our hope and our trust, that we're wanting to see things hold together. Sometimes what we do is we make idols out of different things in our hearts, that everything would be good if it was just good in this area. And so we do that at different times, often at the places where we feel most acutely the struggle in our life or wherever that may be. But what it does, if we stop and think about it, and this is kind of what I want us to be thinking about this morning, is we put our hope in a temporal thing, a temporal thing that can never fully bring us peace and joy and rest that only God can do. But we do that a lot because of our sinfulness, because we're a created being and in our sinfulness, we want to seek to make everything okay by putting our hope in something that can't actually do that. Because we are created for an infinite God that loves us and knows us, that created us in his image to be in relationship with him. And anything that we try to fit into that place will ultimately fail us. It will never be able to take the place that God himself only can take. And so I start there this morning because what we did last week and what we're doing this week is we're talking about some of the songs that we sing as a church body. And so last week we looked at the song, Though You Slay Me, and we talked about that. Today we're going to look at a different song that we sing here as part of the, our church. And, and the reason that I stop and do this from time to time and we look at these different songs is the songs that we sing are a vital part of the teaching ministry of the church. Right? We sing these songs together and we sing them back to God and we oftentimes memorize these words and we leave here with the song kind of flowing in our mind and we hold it. And it's a very important part of the teaching ministry of the church. Those things stay with us. And so we try to pick songs here that are strong theologically, that, that point us to truth of who God is and what it looks like. A lot of the times the songs that we sing, to be quite honestly, are prayers. Prayers to God of asking him and seeking him. Uh, one of my favorite songs that we sing here, uh, I often ask that we sing it right before the sermon is, Lord, I need you. And I always ask for that to be sung right before the sermon because that's the way I feel every time I stand up. God, I desperately need you because this is going to be terrible if you're not the one that's moving and leading and guiding in this. And so it's a prayer. Lord, I need you. Can't do this without you. And so so many of our songs are that way. And so the song that we're going to talk about today is, is that. It's, it's a prayer that really helps focus us on what I'm talking about here is God is central in all things. And he has to be the center of our life in every way. 
It's a really, really old song. It's one of the oldest songs we sing. I, I say that. We just sang a song, uh, Psalm 66. It's straight from Psalm 66. So that song is older, right? It actually comes from Psalm 66, even though it was written a few years back uh, with the melody it has. But this particular song that I'm talking about is called Be Thou My Vision. And it was written in the 6th century in Ireland. And I think that's really cool to think about. I was thinking about that this week. When you go back and you read the words and you think about our brothers and sisters in the faith have been singing this song for 1,400 years. And in this song, when you, when you see it and you start to look at the words of what it's talking about, it's talking about how we need God to be central in everything in our life. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Not be all else to me, save that thou art. That it would just be you as central in my life. And it's a beautiful song that's a prayer that's helping us point us to our need of God in everything. It's a prayer of our deepest need, really, that we would have God ever before us seeking him in all things and that he would be the thing that we look to. He would always be the thing. He would be central in our life in every way. But if you stop and think about it, what's buried in that song, kind of in the background as we sing that song and we ask that God would be our vision, that he would be the thing that's central in everything, is the truth that we often struggle to make him such. Because of our sinfulness, we want to place other things in the center of our life and turn to other things to give us hope, to give us happiness or joy, and we turn to other things. And so that's why we need this song. That's why we need to come back to this over and over. The truth of who God is, that he alone will satisfy our deepest needs. And so the way I want us to think about this song today is we're going to look at it through the lens of Philippians chapter 3 that I just read to you. And as we think about it, this is the way I want us to look at that passage and the song together today. First of all, why do we struggle with keeping that central in our lives? God being the vision of our life and all, all things, why do we struggle? Secondly, as we struggle, if we don't see God as the center, where does that lead? But then lastly, how does Jesus save us from that? Right? So why do we struggle in that? Where does that struggle lead if we continue to place other things in God's place? but then how Jesus ultimately rescues us from that. And so let's just start with Philippians chapter three. Let's look at verses one through three to begin with. Apostle Paul again writing, he says, finally, my brothers rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and it is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and the glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And so I'm going to stop there for just a second. Let me just give you some background. I know as we're doing this, we're kind of jumping into these different passages. Uh, So just a little bit of background here. Paul's writing to the church in Philippi, a church that he helped to plant and start. And now he's writing back to encourage this church, this fledgling church that's now growing and, and trusting in Jesus. And so when he writes back, oftentimes in these letters, as you read through Paul's letters that are written to the different churches, like like Romans and, and Philippians and Colossians and Galatians and all these letters, what he often does in the first half of the letter is a great big theological truth. He kind of expounds on theology for the first few chapters. And he really shows you who God is and the way he's working and what it looks like. And then somewhere in the middle, it usually switches to more practical application. He begins to apply what is true of who we are in Jesus and what that looks like. And that's partly what he's doing here. He gets to the middle and he says, brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And he says, I've told you this and I'm writing it again. And it's, it's good for me to tell you and it's good for you to hear again. And so he's encouraging them. But then he starts to talk about look out for the dogs. 
Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And real quickly, you can go, what in the world is he talking about? And he's going to say in verse 3, after he says that about mutilating the flesh and look out for the dogs, we are the circumcision who worship the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And it's something that Paul dealt with a lot. And you see it a lot in his letters in the first century to churches. You see it particularly, uh, probably most obviously, uh, in the letter to the Galatians. But what he's talking about is oftentimes as Paul would go in and establish the church and he would preach the gospel and he would point them all to our hope is in Jesus and him alone. And then there would be people that would come after him and they go, yeah, yeah, it's Jesus. But you also need to do some other things. You need to make sure that you become Jewish and you follow the law and you get circumcised and you do all these things. And people would come behind Paul and try to add to the good news of what Jesus has done. Instead of it just being what Jesus has done by grace through faith and what Christ has done, they would try to add these different things. And so he's saying here, watch out for those that come. He calls them dogs for the evildoers, for those that would mutilate the flesh. And he's actually kind of flipping the way people often said uh, in the first century. Oftentimes the Jews would call Gentiles, non-Jewish people, dogs. Right? They were dirty, they were ceremonially unclean, they didn't follow the Jewish laws of cleanliness and rituals, and so they oftentimes would call them dogs as a derogatory term. But Paul's kind of flipping it here, and he's saying, watch out for the dogs that are telling you that you have to do all these other things to be good with God. Because look at what he says in verse 3. He says that, uh, sorry, I lost my place, there we are. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God, and the glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. He's saying we are the circumcision. And what he's talking about when he says we are the circumcision are those that have put their faith in Jesus. Paul will talk about this a lot. The true Israel, the true people of God are those that have put their faith in Jesus. And he says those that come behind and try to make it all these other things about what you do and the things that you pick up and you make it. He's like they're distorting the truth of who you are in Jesus. It's completely by grace through faith and that, that you have been brought into this relationship with God. Now, here's the problem. And it's why he writes this and why he's encouraging them. And it's the struggle that we have. We want to make and put our hope in our flesh what we do. It's the default of our sinfulness. The sinfulness of our hearts wants to always make it about ourselves. And so in the Bible, it talks about this a lot. When we rely on our flesh or we turn back to our flesh. And there's a couple ways you can think about that, but we could kind of summarize it in this way. When we're operating in our flesh, we're removing God from the center of all things and putting ourselves as the center of all things. It's about me and what I do rather than Jesus and what he's done. My flesh is my sinfulness, right? And so if you go back to even the original sin being that Satan comes and tempts Adam and Eve with what? You can be like God. You don't need him. You can do it yourself. You can remove God from the center of your life and you can make yourself the center of your life and that will work better for you. And we go, yeah, okay, I'll try that. And then we continue to do that. We even do that in the ways in which we approach God. And that's what Paul was dealing with. People were coming along behind him and going, yeah, yeah, it's Jesus and it's by grace, but it's all these other things. And Paul's going, no, it's not. It's all Jesus and it's all what he's done. And so look out for anyone that would try to pull you away from that. And so when you think about walking in our flesh, there's a couple errors that we make. You know, we can kind of do it in two ways. You can think of two ends of the same problem. One is we walk in our flesh and we can do this even as a Christian. 
We can go back to our old way of thinking and we can say, I'm saved by grace through faith and what Christ has done and God forgives me. So now I can do whatever I want. Right. I'm saved by grace. And even though I blew it, oh, I blew it here. He'll forgive me. It's okay. And so we start to operate in that way. And that was happening in Paul's day, which he writes very clearly against. You get in Romans. He says, should we continue in sin that grace may abound? And he says, by no means. How can you who died to sin still live in it? He says, no, you're walking by your flesh if you do that and not by the spirit. And so that's one way in which we do it. We go back and we kind of tell ourselves little lies and we go, it's okay. And it's not that big of a deal and God will forgive me. And so then we're walking in our flesh and we're doing the very thing that we're not called to do. Or the other extreme of that is we go, yes, I'm, I'm saved by grace or faith, but, but God will love me a little more if I do these things. And we start to add works on as if we will gain more of God's love or his approval by what we do. And we're still walking in our flesh. Do you see that? We're still trying to be the center of our life and our relationship with God. And it's all about me and what I do when I do that. And so we end up with a checklist of all the things that we do and how well we do them. And then we feel better. And what we're, but what we're doing at the bottom of that is we're still making it about ourselves. We're still seeking to make it all about what I do rather than what God has done. And so we, we struggle in this way. And so that's why I love the song, Be Thou My Vision. Because that's what the prayer is saying. That's what the song is saying. God, you be the vision of my life in everything. I want you and nothing else. You you get later in the song and it talks about riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance now and always. I want you to be the thing that I'm about. Not all these other things. I want you to be central in my life. I don't want to walk in my flesh. I want to walk in the spirit that shows me that you alone are the center of all things. And it's so easy for us to start to put our hope in our flesh and to struggle in this way. And it's a universal human struggle. So it's the bottom of our sinfulness. We want to believe that we're the center of our world instead of God being the center of the world. And so we do that and we do it over and over. And I think about that song, Be Thou My Vision. I think about what Paul's writing here to the church in Philippi in the first century. And although it probably looked very differently in the ways that they were pursuing those things in the first century, I'm sure it looked very different of what life looked like in the sixth century in Ireland. But the truth is the heart is the same all the way through, whether it's the first century or the sixth century or us today. We want to continue to place ourselves at the center of all things. I want to make it all about me. And what I want and what I feel and the way I operate rather than who God is and what he's called me to. What he's done for me and my identity in him. And here's the problem. If we don't address this, where this leads is all sorts of problems. If we don't see this, then we're going to continue to chase after things that will ultimately never satisfy. We will continue to seek after things that can never bring us to the place that God created us to be. And so what you see here is Paul even uses himself as an example. He says, don't put your your faith in in your flesh and what you're doing. He says, I'm telling you, I've done that, right? Verse four, he says, though I myself have every reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Judah, Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. 
And Paul says, I have a really great resume if it's going to be, I am accepted by God based on what I do. Right? He gives you all these things. If you don't know Paul's story, before God literally knocked him down as he was walking along his way to persecute the early church, he was like a star in the Jewish community. He was like the guy. He was this brilliant teacher and very smart and he knew all these things and he was so zealous for God's glory and he thought he was doing the right thing by attacking Christians and he was doing all these things and that's what he's talking about here. He said, I had the resume. I had all the accolades. If I could earn my worth before God, I would have done it. He's like, I was keeping the law and I was doing all these things. But here's the problem. As soon as you operate that way, You're chasing after something that you can't ultimately do. And Paul knows this and he teaches this and he says this over and over and over again. He came to that realization that he can never do enough to be perfect in God's sight. He can never do it by his own doing. But when we begin to buy into that lie, we operate in our flesh. There's a couple ways we do it. One, we either try to earn our worth before God. God's going to accept me because I'm a good person. I'm going to do these things. And we make our spiritual relationship with the Lord based on what we do. But that's still putting you at the center. That's still operating in your flesh. It's still me and what I do and how well I'm doing. It'll also lead you to arrogantly look down on others. It'll lead you to this uh, kind of roller coaster of up and down. If it's your performance and you're the center of all things, the days when you're doing really good, you'll feel really great. And the days when you have a bad day, you'll feel really terrible because you're not putting your trust in who Jesus is, but yourself and your performance. And that is a a disaster to continue to operate in that way. But that's what we often do. We begin to chase those things based on our own doing. It's like a hamster running on a wheel. You ever see the hamster and the little, they run and run and run and tire themselves out and they don't go anywhere. And that's what it looks like when you place yourself as the center of, of your life. You're chasing after something that you can never ever do. You're trying to earn your worth before a holy, righteous God, and you can't do it. But the truth is there's there's other ways in which we do the same thing. We become a Christian and we say it's by grace through faith and it's all Jesus is doing and I believe that and I confess that and I recognize I'm not perfect and I need Jesus to do it for me and we go yes. And then the rest of our life we seek to operate the way the world operates. We still seek to operate in our flesh and seek happiness and comfort and security by what we do, right? We, we, we do it in our job and we do it in our position and we do it in the ways that we operate. We go, man, I'll be happy if I just get a bigger house. I'll be happy if I just get this raise. I'll be happy if I just get this. And we take our, let our whole life be consumed by chasing after things that will never, ever ultimately bring you the joy that you're looking for. And all the while you say, I'm saved and it's, it's Jesus and it's Christ alone. But we still make our life look like that's not true. We still operate in the flesh. And if we do that and we continue to do that again, it leads to futility. It's going to be a constant struggle. Now, that doesn't mean that good things, that good gifts that God gives you in your life are bad. That doesn't mean that I'm calling everybody to give up everything in a life of poverty and not have anything. But it's holding those things lightly, understanding that they're gifts from God, and that's not where our ultimate joy will be. And trusting that that's true. 
and holding to him in all things. So many examples I could give you of different people, of interviews I've read and different things I've seen through the years of people that kind of get it all, right? That, that go after the money and the wealth and the fame and they make it and they're this high achieving person and then they get it and they go, huh. There's one example that always comes to mind for me is an interview with Tom Brady on 60 Minutes about seven or eight years ago. No, Tom Brady is considered by many to be like greatest quarterback ever to play football. He's now won seven championships. He's been in the NFL. He's, he's my age. He's 45 years old and he's still playing in the NFL. Right? He's tried to retire multiple times, which that probably tells you something about his identity and laying it down and whatever. But in this interview, in 60 Minutes, this is years ago, he had won like two or three Super Bowls. It's kind of right in the middle of his career and big whatever. Uh, if you don't know, Tom Brady's married to, uh, I don't know her name, a Victoria's Secret model. His wife is uh, this beautiful model who is more wealthy than he is, actually. <laughs> so the two of them are extremely wealthy. They have all the money, beautiful people, beautiful kids, houses, cars, everything. And so in this interview, the guy asked Tom Brady, uh, the guy on 60 Minutes goes, What's it like to be Tom Brady? Like, that's the question. And he's like giddy asking it. What's it like to be you? And he goes, "Uh, you know, it's okay. And the guy goes, what do you mean it's okay? You're Tom Brady. And he starts listing all the accolades and your houses and your money and your wife and your kids and all these things. He's like, what do you mean? And he goes, "Uh, it's okay, I guess. And then he has this nervous laughter. And you can go watch it on YouTube. And then he goes, this can't be all that there is. And the guy goes, what? What do you mean? What else could there be? And he goes, I don't know, but I sure wish I did. And that's what he says in the interview. And you watch it and you're like, what? It's because Tom Brady is just like you and me. The deepest desires of his heart is to know his creator. And all the money in the world and all the houses and all the fame and the Super Bowls and the MVPs and all those things will never be able to fill the infinite void that is in you that only God can fill. Nothing else will do that ever. No matter how much we try. But what we do is even sometimes in our belief, even as believers, we say by grace through faith and it's Jesus, but then we still order our life around chasing these things that we think are going to make us happy that are never ultimately going to make us happy. No matter how much we try. It makes me think of uh, the, the quote from G.K. Chesterton. If you know who Chesterton was, he was a brilliant Christian uh, writer, kind of turn of the century in England. But it's credit, I think this is credit to him. I think I'm getting this right. But he had the quote of every man that knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. Have you ever heard that before? That you're seeking to fill this void in your life through all the things that you chase after. And none of those things will be able to fill, like Blaise Pascal's uh, term, the God-shaped hole in your heart. There's an infinite void in you that only God can fill. And if you seek to fill it with anything else, it will never, ever be able to do it. And so, so many people achieve these great things and they chase after it and they do all these things and then they get there and then it's like, now what? And so when we seek to fill our life with temporal things that only God can ever fill, it's going to lead to struggle. It's never going to fill us. So what is the answer? How does Jesus rescue us from this? Look at what Paul says in verse 7. 
So he tells you his whole resume. He says, if you can put your faith in what you do, it would be me. But then he says, verse seven, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And what he says is what I came to and what I see and what I recognize is the only way that I have the righteousness of God is through faith in what Jesus has done for me. He says, I recognize that my righteousness is nothing, but that it's Jesus's righteousness for me. And the only way that I ever get that, the only way that I can rest, the only way that I can ever be where I was created to be in relationship with God and the way that God created me is by faith in what Jesus has done for me. And what he tells us is as soon as you see that, as soon as you come to the place and you lay down your doing and you say, God, I can't do this. And it's only Jesus and only what he's done and nothing else. That then you start to see that all the other pursuits outside of making much of who God is, the very thing that we were created for, is rubbish. He says, I count it all as rubbish. Right? I mean, Paul gave up all his, all his position and his power as one of the religious leaders. Right? As soon as he started following Jesus, all those people were done with him. And then he lived a life of attack and being thrown in prison and being beaten and being tortured and all these things. And he says, what I lost in power and position and the things that the world gives is rubbish compared to knowing Jesus. You know the word that he uses there? Rubbish. It's actually the, the literal word in the Greek. It's dung. It's animal excrement. It's really what it says, right? If, if we're being completely biblical, that when you see who you are in Jesus, everything else looks like a big steaming pile of poop. That's biblically true, right? That's what he's saying. He says everything else that you start to recognize, all those things that you were putting your hope in, And all those things that you are chasing after are nothing compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. Because he is the thing that you were created for. He is the thing that will satisfy your deepest needs. Nothing else will ever be able to do it. All other good things are but a shadow of the substance that is him. I just read this this week. A friend posted this quote from Jonathan Edwards. I think it was on Thursday as I was finishing this sermon. I was like, yes, that's it. Jonathan Edwards says, to go to heaven and to fully enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Better than fathers and mothers, husbands and wives, children, the company of any or all earthly friends. These are but shadows, but God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the fountain. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. You are created for him. Everything else is signposts pointing to who he is. And so when we seek to put our hope in all these other things, it will ultimately fail us. Which, by the way, is exactly 
what the song Be Thou My Vision says. Be Thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Not be all else to me except what Thou art. It says, Be my be thou my wisdom, and thou my true word, I ever with thee, and thou with me, Lord. Thou my great father, I thy true son, thou in me dwelling, and I am with thee one. And what he's saying, the song is saying over and over, is God, would you be the center of everything? Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. I don't need any of those things. I need you and you alone. Would you be my vision? Would you be the thing that I look to? And we start to understand that the only way that we ever come into that relationship is with Jesus and what he's done. And we're trusting him. And it's the only way that we have the righteousness of God, that right standing that we were created for, that relationship with God. Then everything else begins to fall away. And it's a glorious reminder that our lives are called to be all about him. And he will never, ever disappoint you. He's the thing that you're made for. And so we pray that, we sing that. Be thou my vision. You would be the thing that I'm about. So would you pray with me? God, we thank you for the glorious truth of the gospel that you have done for us what we could never ever do for ourselves. We thank you that even when we place other things in your place and we seek to follow after these other things and we we follow after them hoping that they will bring us to a place of joy or comfort or security, that you continue to pursue us. You continue to show us that it's only in you. And so we pray today that we would see that afresh. I pray that as we, as we sing this song together, that it would be the cry of our hearts that you would be central in everything. That we would seek after you in all ways and all things. And we pray all of it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Be thou my vision.
Still be my vision, oh Lord.